I can have your attention back with me, that'd be very, very helpful. Uh, for those of you who are regulars, you'll know this, but for many of you who may be here for the first time around us, we've been in a series uh, in a letter written by Paul uh, to, to, to the church in Ephesus and the surrounding area uh, entitled Ephesians, and we've been looking at this amazing letter uh, since the beginning of last September. We've got three to go, including today, uh, and we're kind of nearing the end of what has been an epic journey uh, through this letter that has changed us as a bunch of people. It really has. I know it's changed me, uh, and I know from the feedback I've had from others, it is changing them. So I think it's been incredible. But within it, we've entitled the whole of this series, Crafted. As what we've realized is that through this letter that we're discovering week on week that we have been uniquely made, lovingly made for purpose. And if you go leave with nothing else this morning, please leave with this, that God longs for you to understand how much he loves you. And his love is eternal and unending. And he longs for your life to be filled with that love in order that you'd live in this life full of that love. And that's what we've been discovering week in, week out, and it is changing us. And uh, my hope is this morning as we get to look at another bit of the letter, it will continue to do this. Um, But to start off with, I wanted to just talk you through my summer wardrobe. You know, it is the first Sunday of the summer holidays, and all of us, I know, have different wardrobes. I have a wardrobe for winter and a wardrobe for summer. It's basically the same wardrobe, but it just changes slightly, and it goes from these spectrums. What I've found is throughout the summer months, throughout July and August, I just need the items of clothing, really, that are here. I have my wetsuit. I have my kind of short sleeve shirt and trousers. I don't wear shorts. Don't really like them. Don't wear them. So I've got that, and this is basically it. This is kind of what it looks like. Smart but casual. That's the kind of little middle-of-the-road place I go and sit out in. Smart but casual. And... It's already coming. Wife on the front row, already. It's not smart, she says. Um, presentable. <laughs> we'll call this one. Presentable. And then the other end is the suit. The suit that comes out for the weddings. Because it's wedding season and that's the only time I ever wear a suit. And what I find is that I have to make sure I've got the appropriate ones depending on which event. I actually thought my wife encouraged me this morning to do the whole of this morning's talk in my wetsuit. But I felt, though it would make a point, I didn't know if it was the point I wanted to make. So the key is that I have to ensure that I'm wearing the right clothes depending on the event. And to be honest, the suit one is usually the one that lets me down, as it's usually that one that I realise on the morning of a wedding that I've generally forgotten something associated with the suit. Worst case scenario is the one I did, is I worked out I'd forgotten the actual suit. And so I was phoning an hour to go before doing a wedding. As many people as I knew, so I wasn't in Birmingham, I was in a different town, uh, phoning as many people as I knew saying, could I borrow a suit off someone? I've done it without shoes. So I've done weddings in people's granddad's suits and their shoes. And so I've learned when you've done one of those and people look at you and think you're quite uniquely dressed. We knew you have your own sense of style, but is that really it? That I've learned that actually make sure you're wearing the appropriate wear from wetsuit to suit. That's my summer wardrobe in a nutshell. Now, today, why am I doing that? Just because I thought it is summer. And today I want us to look at some clothing that Paul wants to give us that we're to wear that is for all seasons. 
a clothing that Paul wants to outline that actually every single one of us needs to pick up and wear daily, whatever's going on. And he's going to do it by setting it in context of why we need to wear these clothes. As if you've got a Bible, we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, read from verse 10 through to 17. If you haven't, it appears on the screen, and I'll read from there as well. Uh, I always say, look at your Bible as well as what's on the screen to make sure that I'm not making up uh, what's in the Bible. It's definitely there. So Paul writes this, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand... Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. First Sunday of the summer holidays, and we thought we'd do a bit of a light preach for that day we're all in a bit of a holiday mode the sun's been out for a week it's now about to break and rain and we thought do you know what let's take the atmosphere down let's get this in armor of god devil spiritual battles that's a light one isn't it yeah let's ease in quite nice and then we'll go and love the city afterwards this the reality is i I saw this i knew it was coming i was thinking oh oh no of all the sundays Poor planning, Hurst. Poor planning. And as I prayed about it, I thought, you know what? It isn't poor planning. Because actually, it's so important that we understand that the clothes, the armor that Paul outlines in this passage, aren't some to be addressed when life is tough, when it feels like we're not in holiday season. It's actually that we need to understand that what he's calling us to is to put on a crafted set of clothes that is to be put on daily, throughout every season of life. And therefore, even though we're kind of in the holiday season, I think it is at these moments that we need to remember the reality of what we're living in, but also the reality of what we're called to put on. Now, in it, I think it's really important for us to see that Paul writes about this, these clothes to put on, this spiritual battle that's going on, at the end of his letter. He doesn't write it at the beginning. And I think it's important for us to note that because actually it points us to something that actually believers, followers of Jesus can get a little bit warped in their thinking. See, if he put it in the beginning of the letter, there could have been a danger of believers becoming preoccupied with a spiritual battle, preoccupied with an enemy that is the devil, which we'll go on to see. And could have then spent moment after moment thinking, oh yeah, where's, where's the devil? Where's the battle? Where's it all at? And sometimes there's a danger in terms of Christianity where there becomes this besotted kind of want to continuously look and say, actually, where's the devil? I'm sure he's around. I've got an enemy. There's a spiritual battle on. Where is it? Where is he? Where is he? And they have people who then address it. I told people I'd use this voice before I even spoke about this. I thought I'm going to try not to, but it is going to happen. Just arguing with myself. And so you get these people and they say, the devil, the devil is around. 
And it's kind of forever this proclamation of some kind of horror film that's about to be played. And there's this preoccupation of saying, actually, where is he? Where is he? Whereas actually Paul started the letter by saying, praise be to the God and Father. Because he wants us to not be sotted in terms of the spiritual battle. He wants us to be besotted with the God in whom we're in relationship with. And so he leads us through this journey of understanding who God is, who we are in light of him. And then at the very end of the letter, having set out how this life centered on Jesus changes everything about how we are to act, behave, how we are to think, how we are to relate to one another, how we are to relate to God. He then in that, this moment says, oh, in all of that, I just want to warn you about something. So you be aware. Be aware that actually this life that you get to live with Jesus at the center is a life that's a battle. A battle with a very real enemy, but a battle that has been won that you have everything you need for. And it's that context that I want us to look at these verses. Not with a sense of fear, not with a sense of, well, isn't this a bit nuts? Are we really going to go dark agey and, and like talk about the devil? But rather, a moment of saying, no, no, we're going to keep God at the center But in us understanding who God is, we've got to understand there is an enemy, but not out of fear of that enemy, but hopefully in understanding that it is real, but we get to prepare ourselves within it in order that we don't get taken out within the battle. So where Paul starts off and where I want to start off with is actually there's a a kind of way we're to stand, that we're to stand in strength. As far as I see it, there just seems to be a way every single person stands. And you can tell a lot by the way they stand. And so you have some people who stand and they just seem quite easygoing. You know, it's really hard when you stood in front of a lot of people to try and look easygoing. I don't know, you kind of look like this and you're just, you're just like, well, I'm all right. All right, actually. You have that side of stand. And then you have the kind of easier one to do, which is the kind of emo stand. The individual who can't look at you in the eye, they're just like, whoa. <sighs> And there's that stand. And maybe if I had a hood, but it was too hot, I'd have my hood up and that would be my stand. There's the ones that are just pretty carefree and they they can't help but just kind of stand and they're just leaning on the wall. They're just like, yeah, I can can stand. I can stand, but it will always be supported by the wall. You've then got the stand, which is that I am very confident. I'm a very confident individual. You know the kind of individual that when you go to shake their hand, they have to crush yours to show how confident they are. I've worked with a number of them, not within church environment, within the environment I worked in before. Um, but in it, those, those kind of guys, they puff out their chests and they're there. They're like, Whoa, I'm here. I am here. And you can't help but think, oh, you are here. You know, Paul Sams, to be honest, he could stand that like that. Me, I, ju- I just look like a puny guy. You know, I'm going to puff it out and everyone's still thinking, are you really puffing out? I can see your tummy, Adrian. Can't see anything else. Oof. So it's that. Then there's the kind of stance of, come on then! And you see those, and there's an individual, and they're kind of their stance is, really? You want to try that? And there's something about them, and you just think, you know what, I don't think I am. I think I'm going to go around you. I like how you're stood. I want to respect how you're stood, but I'm not going to go anywhere near where you're standing. See, how we stand says a lot about us. And Paul wants us to understand that we need to be those that have a way that, that we're standing. Not physically that people can see us, but understanding that we're standing in something. That we're standing in our identity 
through Jesus. That's why he's taken the first three chapters of this letter to get it through to us. To understand that when we stand as followers of Jesus, we stand in our identity. A stand in identity that he's spent ages penning through. And so let's just look at it again just to keep reminding us because it does me good if it doesn't do you good. That we stand in this identity of knowing that we're chosen, blameless and shameless. We stand knowing that we're in this identity that we're loved A love that that means that we've been predestined, that God has always loved us and will always love us. And his love has meant that he's adopted us, called us his own children. It's an identity that means that we've been redeemed and forgiven. It's an identity that's meant that we've been given a purpose to live with on this earth. An identity that means that we have power within us, that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work and living within us. It's an identity that we live in that means that we understand that we're alive by grace. It was never anything that you or I did. It was all God's doing. It's an identity that understands that we are now God's handiwork. That when he wants to parade what it looks like for his work to be shown, he kind of holds you and I up in all of our frailty and brokenness. Oh no, this is one of mine. This is my handiwork. It's an identity where we understand that we're accepted unconditionally forever. An identity where we understand that we belong to him. Nothing can separate us from him. An identity that understands that we get to dwell with him and he dwells with us. An identity that allows us to understand that we are now free, utterly free and confident before him. An identity that means that yes, we're loved and yes, we are uniquely gifted that every single one of us, God has uniquely gifted us for the unique environments that we're in. Paul says, you stand in that identity. But it's also, there's some other things that we get to stand in. So if you go to the next slide, that we get to stand in this understanding, not only our identity, but it's transformed our relationships. Paul's done that. Ephesians 3 and 4 is all about how it's impacted our relationships with God in order that we have peace with God, but also with other people. In other... So much so that it means that actually anyone who's centered their lives in Jesus then becomes part of this multicolored, multi-diverse community that isn't a type, but is all types of people. Because we realize that actually through Jesus, we get to stand in unity in relationship. This causes us to stand in transformation of who we are. That this identity we now have in God transforms how we think, how we reveal our emotions and how we manage our emotions. It transforms what we say and how we say it. We've seen that week on, week out. If you're kind of intrigued in one of those, like look at www.theoasischurch.com and listen to some of the talks on how it impacts our emotions or our thinking or our speech. But it also transforms how we are. It allows us to understand, as we've seen over the last five weeks, that actually the life circumstances that you're in, that I'm in, become prisms that God wants to radiate his light and colour through. So our singleness, marriage, family life, workplace, become moments where actually we allow the richness of identity in Jesus. The transformation of how we think, of how we use our emotions, of how we speak, to then be radiated out of the life circumstances that we're in, in order that it gets to reveal who Jesus is. Paul says, stand in this. Stand in the power of, that God has for you. The power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that's what you're to stand in. 
And that power is also going to be revealed through clothes that he's going to give us. Clothes that he says are armor. Armor we're going to see that's needed because actually it's a battle that we're in. A battle with a very real enemy. And it's that place I want to take us next. See, having said stand in strength, he then says, why? Because there's an enemy. Verse 11, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. In 21st century Western culture, we tend to not like to talk about the devil. To present a God of love is, a, is about palatable. Uh, with the friends I know who don't know anything about Jesus. But to then say, oh yeah, I believe in a God of love, but I also believe in a devil who's out to usurp God of all of his authority. At that point, they're like, yeah, I kind of get the God of love bit if you have to believe in a God, but devil, aren't you just a bit wacko, Adrian? And yet the Bible's really clear that the devil is a very real person. Probably one of the greatest deceptions that's gone on in the 20th and 21st century is actually just start to unpick the idea that the devil is real. The devil is an enemy that's out to try and usurp God of his authority. And so with our Western thinking, I think, oh, but science and reason is we have to still approach the Bible and say, well, what does that say? And the Bible paints a vivid picture of an enemy, an enemy that's there at the very beginning of the book who's seeking to usurp God of his authority, leads to the downfall of mankind. And an enemy's there that when Jesus is, is on earth, seeking to tempt him and say, oh no, don't do that. Come and join me. Come and join me. I'll give you everything you want. Enemy that's very present throughout, that you find within the New Testament letters that isn't continuously being flagged as one to fear and to focus on all the time, but is one to be aware of. He's real and out to usurp God of his authority. See, the devil's goal is to rob anyone of an understanding of who God is. That's the devil's ultimate goal. He, he longs for the power that God has. He longs to be as God is. And therefore, anyone who sought to take on God's identity, he's, the devil is longing to rob them of that. And we have to be understanding that we are within a battle. If we focused our life on Jesus, we have an enemy who's out to rob us of this identity we get to stand in, of this transformed life we get to live in. An enemy that's seeking to rob us of that by seeking to deceive us. Seeking to deceive us by saying, actually, why don't you satisfy yourself or find peace in that rather than God? He's always longing to present things that seem good, seem nice. And yet we have to take care and say, but am I allowing that thing that is good to actually replace who God is? Because ultimately, God's the one who's going to bring us ultimate satisfaction and peace. As the devil's one who will deceive. And in this passage, it talks about the devil and all of his cronies, all of his powers that are seeking to do that. They're going to rob through deception. Going to rob through lies. The lies of unpicking what Paul has spent three chapters writing about you and I. Lies that say, hey, I know it says that you're accepted unconditionally by God who is 100% loving, but surely that's not true for you. And it might say that you're shameless but, and blameless, but surely that's not true for you because actually if everyone knew what you did last night... 
is one who's out to bring lies and accusations against us because his deepest desire is to rob everyone and anyone of the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so for us who are following Jesus, there's that sense of him wanting to continuously rob us of our identity in Jesus. But there's also a want for him in anyone who's not yet seen Jesus to continuously rob us of any sense of understanding who Jesus is. At that point, if you sat here and think, well, Adrian, are you not saying that I'm not a follower of Jesus? Are you not saying I'm like a follower of devil? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's one who's out to continuously blind you to the wonder of who Jesus is. He's one who's wanting to rob us through deception. One who's wanting to rob us through lying. He's also one who wants to rob us by oppressing us. Because we live in the West, and because we live in the UK, which is actually quite a nice nation to live in, whether we think that or not at the moment, with all the uncertainty that's there, there are many, many nations and many people who live in other nations who would do anything and do try to do anything to come to this nation. You have to look at the Mediterranean and see the lengths to which people will go to get what we get. But the New Testament was unwritten for people who had it quite easy in the West. The New Testament was written in a context where people were very oppressed. Were oppressed by regimes, power regimes that were seeking to crush them. Were oppressed by not having enough to live with and eat with. And so continuously living kind of hand to mouth. And therefore, if you read much of the New Testament, it makes much of the sense of actually we have an enemy who's seeking to oppress us. Because in them oppressing us, it can then cause us to be squeezed and then start to allow for doubt. And doubt to become a seed that allows us to get to points of frailty and brokenness and think, well, maybe God isn't anywhere. So you have an enemy who's out to oppress us. And in that, you can then think, well, Adrian, you're just trying to fear us. <laughs> is this it? Is this the point of this morning? It's like, let's fear everyone at the beginning of the summer holiday. The devil is real. He's out to get you. No, that's not the point. The point is for us to understand that we have an enemy who is seeking to rob, but we have an enemy who is defeated. Colossians 2.15 says this about Jesus. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That Jesus, at the moment of it seeing like it is his greatest humiliation... The point at which it seemed as though the enemy had won, the devil had won, that actually Jesus, who is God, is crucified. At that point, it was the moment in which God took a moment that seemed like utter defeat, utter brokenness, to a point of the greatest victory. A point that actually what Jesus was doing in that moment was dealing with all of the power of shame, all of the power of, of sin and corruption and destruction, all of the power of darkness and saying, I'm taking it on myself and now I'm dealing with it. And so in that moment, it becomes rather than a moment where he seems to be a spectacle of ridicule. So you read the accounts of Jesus on the cross, half naked and people just jeering at him, shouting abuse at him. And so in that moment, it wasn't Jesus who was the spectacle. It was all of his enemies, because in that moment, Jesus was triumphing over everyone. And that perspective of the cross, of Jesus' death and then resurrection, when he rises again and says, oh, now peace is available to everyone, 
Everyone has access to God. Everyone has access to peace. It's the moment in which we get to look at the lens of an enemy, the devil, and allow to know that we have a defeated enemy who's out to just inflict pain in his defeat. We haven't got one where the destiny, the outcome of the war hasn't yet been decided. This is a battle that's been won. But it's a battle with an enemy who's yet to throw in the towel. But he will. And whilst he's still throwing the towel, he's still seeking to rob us. But what we need to understand is we have a God who's on our side, who is stronger and who has won. And that brings us then to that point of understanding that we get to stand in the reality we're in with this enemy that's seeking to rob us, understanding that God himself has the clothes that we need within this battle. And it's here that I want us to finish off with. So verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God. Paul, in these moments of writing these letters, is kind of chained to Roman guards. He knew what Romans looked like. And there's this illustration that's building in his head thinking, man, we're in this battle. We have this enemy against us. We've got this one life that we have in Jesus that we need to live in light of. And he looks and he sees these soldiers around. He says, actually, soldiers aren't just dressed for the kind of sake of it. They're dressed for all seasons. They have an armor that they physically put on. Every element has a reason why they've got it. He says, oh, the same is true for us. There's a, a spiritual clothing that we need to put on that allows us to understand that we got strength to stand in the reality that we have in God. And this uh, clothes, this armor that we to put on, if we go back a slide just for one moment, isn't just any old armor. It isn't just an illustration that Paul thinks, I know, Roman soldiers, battle, army, all fits. Just like Adrian Hurst in his summer wardrobe. Kind of just a nice little illustration. No, no, what he's pointing to is saying, no, no, this isn't any old armour. It's the armour of God. This is the very armour that God himself wears. Isaiah 59 paints this picture of God himself clothing himself with armour. Clothing himself with armour to do what? To bring salvation to everyone. That was the point. And that armour that God clothed himself with through his Messiah, Jesus, his son, is the same armour he longs to give you and to give me. And it's that armour I want to just briefly just look at. You see what he starts off with? He says, well, that armour, what is it made of? It's made of a, a belt, a belt of truth. Now, the belt in the Roman guards' time was this belt that actually held everything else together. It kind of meant, made sure that all the underwear was kept in place and all the outerwear could be locked in place. It meant that it was a, a, a belt that allowed there to be a point of no vulnerability. And so they weren't kind of displaying things they didn't want to be displayed and no kind of shame. That was part of it. It was also a part of actually practically being something that other things could be attached to. And Paul says in the same way, you're to clothe yourself with truth. And truth has these two meanings in the word. It's both a truth that we live in, a reality of who God is and how he sees us. A reality that Paul, as I said, has been painting since chapter one of the truth of who Jesus is. And we're only looking at one letter. The whole of the Bible's there, painting this truth of who God is and who we are in light of him. He says, well, you live in light of that. But also, it's not only a truth that we live in, it's also a truth that we live out of. As he's also revealing in terms of truth, there's a reality and integrity that we seek to live from. 
That as we've known this truth of who God is, it then changes who we then seek to be. So we live out that sense of actually I'm going to be true and right in the way I speak and act. I'm going to act with integrity. I'm going to speak with integrity. That I'm going to allow my yes to be yes and my no to be no. He says, right, we put on this belt that says, actually, yeah, today I'm going to live like this. Seeking to live in truth, but live out of truth. Next, we find that from the belt, we then get this breastplate. A breastplate that would have been worn by a Roman guard that would have fit on his front and on his back and would be protecting all of his major organs. The purpose of this breastplate is a breastplate of righteousness. Again, twofold. Something we live in and live out of. The living in is that we get to understand that God, who is fully right, has declared you and I, because of Jesus, fully right. That we're declared good enough. We're declared 100% acceptable. And if we get to live knowing it isn't what I'm doing that's proving this, it's actually who God is that allows me to understand that I'm fully accepted before him. I'm righteous. But it's also not only a righteous that I get to live in of how God's declared it over me, it's a righteous that I now get to live out of. And so I decide to give myself to things that are righteous. I seek to live in things that are good as God would deem them. I'm not seeking to live after things that actually, when I look at it, I think actually this falls short of who God is. See, the more and more we understand how right we are before God, the more and more we want to choose to live in light of that righteousness and how we live. See, so often we've got it wrong. We thought, oh, no, no, what we need to do is just keep pushing people and give them more and more rules to understand the things they can and can't do. Because if we tell them the stuff they can't do, then that causes them to live right. Now, what happens when you give people rules of how you live right is they just seek to live on the edge and try and find as many ways to fudge it as possible. I say, oh, yeah, I don't do that, but I do do this. <laughs> and I don't know what that is for you. It might be to do with drink. It might be to do with sex. It might be to do with your money. I don't know what it is. I know the things that it is for me. But I tell you what changes me is when I understand that, Jesus, you've declared me as right before you. And I now get to live in the wonder of your rightness before you and choosing freely to live in that rightness. And I don't want to do anything that causes me to live in the grayness and shadow of things that fall short of your righteousness. So breastplate, next one, is the shoes. Feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel. The Roman centurions or the Roman soldiers' shoes would have had little studs on the bottom. And that word fitted is actually kind of like steadfast. And it gives this impression of someone who's planted their feet in the ground, studs in, saying, I'm firm, I'm not shifting. But also this readiness to spring into action. And Paul is writing here and saying, actually, there's this readiness that we're to live with, which is the gospel of peace. This understanding of the wonder of what we know through Jesus, that we now have peace with God and peace with one another. And so we get to understand that there is nothing now that can separate us from that peace. So we stand firm in it. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from God's love. And that from that position, we're then able to move forward to say, actually, we get to reveal, whenever appropriate, to everyone and anyone, the wonder of the peace that we've got to know, that they too can taste. She says, feet ready with this gospel of peace. Shoes will keep speeding on. Next one, shield. 
Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. The shield that was of kind of in mind here is the shield that covered the entire body. Now, in it, with this shield, what Paul is talking about is saying, actually, our shield isn't a physical thing that we're continuously putting up. To be honest, the church in its day and age, probably Oasis, where we got things wrong, is continuously building our own shields, thinking, I know, if we put the wall up big enough and only allow people in when we want to, we can protect ourselves. That's not what God and Paul, God was saying through Paul here. He's not saying about a physical shield. He's talking about a shield that is in faith. Faith in God in who he is and what he does. The problem comes when we allow our faith to be split from holy in God into other things. And when we allow our faith to be split into other things, when the enemy comes, and he will, and he will fire flaming arrows, arrows of accusation, arrows arrows that suddenly cause our world to be shaken, In those moments, if we've caused our faith to be split from who God is to other things, what we will find ourselves in is a shield in the other things that is a paper shield. That when the accusations come, when those moments of trouble and oppression come, we'll find that it quickly ignites and we're left with nothing. What we need to understand is this shield that is faith and trust in God is one that actually sees us through regardless of circumstances. It isn't promising that life will always be good. It's rather saying that God won't go anywhere. And it's allowing us to know Romans 8, if you like, becomes the contents of our shield, which promises us now there is no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. If you, just spend your time in Romans 8. I can't... Say that enough. It does mean the word of good. Because in those moments when the accusations come and say, who do you think you are, Adrian? I think, I know who I am is one who understands there's now no condemnation because of how God sees me through Jesus. End of Romans 8. I'm also one who nothing can separate me now from the love of Christ. It means there's going to be stuff that could, but nothing will. From a shield, we go to helmet, I think. Helmet, take up the helmet of salvation. Helmet covers the head. Salvation is both what we've been saved from and into. Saved from unrestlessness. That sense of, am I good enough? Of, what about death? What's going to happen to me when I die? And this salvation through Jesus then takes us from that place of unrest into a place of rest, of understanding through Jesus we're declared good enough. Through Jesus, we're told that actually now death has lost its sting because we now get to understand life and life eternal forever with him, which starts from the moment we put our faith and trust in him. And so he gets this point of saying, oh yeah, you put that salvation, that promise of being saved from and into on your head. Why? Because it's our mind that we have to guard. Our mind needs to continuously be reminded that I'm not the person I used to be. I'm no longer a person of unrest. I actually get to understand deep rest and I get to choose to enter it. And then lastly, Paul says, all right, the last one, oh, it's a sword. A sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In other words, Paul says, do you know what you got? You got a weapon. The weapon is the Bible, the truth, the word of God. 
And that word of God is something that we need to use as you would with any sword, defensively and to advance. Defensively, it means that actually when stuff happens to you, it's the word of God that sustains you. How do we know that pattern? Brief illustration, Jesus in temptation. Devil comes to temptate Jesus. What does Jesus use? The word of God. Man cannot live by bread alone. Jesus continuously using the word of God to be his defense. In terms of advance, how do we know our freedom and how do we proclaim freedom to others? By revealing the wonder of what the Bible says. The Bible is the word of God that's there to bring freedom. The challenge is, do we know it? Are we reading it? Are we applying it? Because if I'm honest, sometimes the Bible can be a chore to read. And my wonder is whether that's true for you too. But the truth is, it's there not as something to endure, but rather something to enjoy in order that it begins to be something that feeds us and allows us these tools to understand. In getting hold of this, it allows us to stand in the reality we're in. And when the enemy comes against us, we think, oh, actually, I've got some truth here to stand on. I'm not just trying to recount what Adrian said. I'm recounting what God said through his word. So here's the deal, though. To have these items, and for many of us in this room, we'll think, yeah, 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 I know the armor of God. I know it. Probably could have preached it better than you, Adrian. Could be true. But the reality is this. These clothes are to do with a discipline that is daily. See, we can know all of this, and we can all leave this morning still thinking, yeah, yeah, armor of God. i tell you what I feel provoked by is that Paul's encouragement is to clothe fully every single item daily. And do you know what the reality of my life is? Is this. I sometimes put some of them on. And sometimes I react to situations and then start to quickly clamber to put them on. And so because I have an advantage over everyone else, because I did know what I was preaching on this Sunday, is I then spent this week doing this. Every morning, first thing I do is say, God, I'm now in this moment taking a moment as I'm getting physically dressed is I'm going to get spiritually dressed. And I remind myself and put on that belt of truth, the truth of who you are, God, and who I am in light of you. A truth of how I'm going to seek to live today. I'm then going to buckle up and put a breastplate of righteousness on. I often wear shirts. It takes a bit of time to button up. So I'm putting my shirt on. I'm thinking, Jesus, I'm putting this shirt on. I'm remembering. Actually, I'm putting how you see me. You said, now I am acceptable. And I get to live out of that place, choosing to live, getting hold of things that are righteous in your sight. I'm going to choose to put on, as I put my shoes on, and say, Jesus, I want to be standing firm in, my, in your gospel of peace, quick to reveal it to others. I want to put on that shield of faith that says, God, I trust in you and you alone. I'm not going to allow others to take the place. I trust fully in who you are. And say, whatever today has in hold, I'm going to fight to say, God, nothing's going to separate me from you. I'm going to put on that helmet of salvation. I don't wear a hat, but I don't know, put gel in my hair. Believe it, I do do it. So put it in my hair. As I'm putting on my hair, I'm saying, Jesus, today, I just say, who I am is a reality is someone who now is saved by you. I've been saved from an old life. I'm dead to that. I now get to live in this new life. And then I pick up your word. And as I read your word, Jesus, I know that this is something that's going to cause me to have all the resource I need. And I thank you, God, that as I put these items on, you want to come and dwell within me. 
in order that I know the strength of what I have, in order that I can stand in the reality of what I've got. Today is of no use if we leave this morning and think that was nice. Today is only of use if we start to say, let's put on all the clothes that have been given us in order that we can live out the reality of what's been afforded us, in order that we can reveal to others the reality that they could know. I can ask us to do two things. Firstly, what are you going to do next after this? And secondly, do you need others to stand with you? For some of us, we just know that we're at a point where it feels like the enemy is very, very much against not only the gate, but it's kind of breathing down our necks. And for us in those moments, it is that we stand in all of the reality of the armor that we've got on, but we don't have to stand alone. We stand with God and we stand with one another in community. I want to ask you to do is do a brave thing. We're going to end in a moment. Some people are going to go get their kids. Some people are going to go get drinks. Some people are going to get ready to go over to Kennel Park. Some of us are going to come forward and say, I just need someone to stand with me. And then we'll pray for you. Otherwise, can I pray for us now? Then we'll end. Jesus, I thank you so much for this wonderful life you've afforded us. And I ask God, would you cause us to live in light of it? God, we don't want to live preoccupied by our enemy. But God, we also don't want to live blind to him. God, we want to live in light of this wonderful life you've afforded us. And God, we want to clothe ourselves with everything we need to live enjoying it, whatever life holds at us. We ask this for your glory, Jesus. Amen.